And welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, I got somebody who undoubtedly is smarter than I, a better lawyer than I. Um, and I just have the privilege of saying that she is one of my very good friends now. And we got some stuff cooking up in the future we can't talk about right now, but you'll be hearing about it soon. None other than the incomparable Laura Coates. What's up, homie? How are you? I'm so good. How are you? I, I get incomparable and compared to your intellect. Wow, this must yeah. be a good day. Oh, my goodness. I know we starting off right. And incomparable is my SAT word for the day. So we oh, just okay. going to go. How's your family doing, by the way? No, I'm kidding. Um, they're doing good. My babies, you know, they're seven and nine now, Bakari. Mm, I keep telling my son who's nine. I'm like, can mommy just rock you a little bit? And he's like... Are you gonna get <laughs> I'm like, just let me just let me rock you. Just let me rock you a little bit. They get I mean, anytime you want twins that are about to be three, you can you can come get ours, please. Mm. Well, hmm. I, I do think your babies are so beautiful and I do love them dearly, but I've passed <laughs> I've passed the potty training, the tantrums, well, the occasional no. tantrums, occasional no. tantrums at this point. Yeah. I'm good. And, yeah, but, no, and plus, we- I had a year distance learning, so I'm not, I'm not taking anyone else's kids. Nope. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. So we start each of our episodes by having our guests walk us through the arc of their careers. And you've had a varied career in law and public service, moving from private practice to being a federal prosecutor to now legal commentary and journalism. Walk us through the arc of your legal yeah. career from when you finished up at Minnesota for law school to now. You know what? I actually started out in private practice. So I did intellectual property litigation. Oh, you wanted them smart lawyers. I, well, you know what? I can spot a fake handbag. Don't go in my closet, but I can, I can spot some <laughs> stuff, some knockoffs. But I also did part of that was First Amendment and media law and defamation, which I have always loved the constitutional aspect of all these things. And frankly, I was drawn to intellectual property because it was just a novel, wild, wild west territory. Everything was kind of new, trying to figure out the landscape of things. Little did I know later on, I would address the wild, wild west of the law for very different reasons in politics. But I ended up starting out in Minneapolis, moving over to New York as a, at a large firm as well for both places. And then, um, but I had this calling. I always wanted to work for the Department of Justice and the Civil Rights Division in particular. And so I'm one of those urban legends where I applied on USA Jobs and knew, <laughs> and knew no one. Like it's like a blind date turned into romance, married. Like I knew no one. I didn't have any connections. I threw my hat into this huge ring of people and um, it was during a hiring freeze, but I had a series of serendipitous occasions where um, you know, the I, I got an interview and once my toe is in the door someplace, Bakari, yeah, the you whole can rest yourself. of my body is yeah. coming in. So I ended up doing getting getting hired eventually and working in the voting section civil rights, which is actually really great because I wrote my senior thesis in college on restoring voting rights for ex-felons and why I thought it was one of the last vestiges of slavery and 13th Amendment and um, one that needs to be corrected. And so I never hid my views about how I thought the justice system needed to be improved and reformed and wanted to be a person who had a seat at the table and in a proactive role in justice, not just reacting to what decisions were made. And um, I did that work for quite a long time. Then I went to the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. with a federal prosecutor there as well, doing um, violent crime um, prosecution, child sexual assault, sexual assault, domestic violence, drug Mm. cases, the gamut. Um, And there was a time after I had my second child that I decided that I really wanted to take away the muzzle 
of being in the Department of Justice and all the things I've been working on between voting rights and, um, and the rolling back of voting rights in this country to constitutional law and political aspects of our legal system and all these different aspects of it, I ended up having an opportunity to really go um, and so take a leap of faith. And I just took a leap of faith, left the work, um, decided that I was going to to do what I could to figure out how to be in media and broadcasting and really share the stories that I really thought needed to be told. And I, Bakari, I posted up in a Panera bread and I figured out, I'm telling you, me and Panera had a fireplace. They had unlimited tea and I posted up. <laughs> I had my daughter who was only six months at the time, really. I had her with me. I was, and I figured it out and um, started going to do more media spots and, and eventually ended up doing CNN and Sirius. And I've done CNN and have my own Sirius XM show ever since. Talk to me about this though, because I've dealt with this the past three, four years with my good friend Kamala. But talk to me about why you chose to be a prosecutor and why we still and will always need good reform oriented black prosecutors. I'm someone who says that the prosecutor, contrary to popular belief, is the most po is the most powerful person in the courtroom. Why did you choose that path? Well, I think that it probably is the most that the it's the reason that Trump prosecutors are despised is because they're the most popular, most powerful in the room. Notice I almost said popular. We are not. Um, and uh, I tell you, people make a lot about having a seat at the table, and that's true. And you must have one. But being a decision maker at that mm -hmm. table, not just being a passive guest is really what you need to be. And I feel, um, I always felt like the decisions that were being made, the decisions and the choices and the power of discretion needed to be in the hands of people who understood the intersection of race and law and justice and politics in our country. And for me, I thought it was incumbent upon somebody who was had a vested interest in civil rights, who was a black woman, mother, wife, daughter, um, who grew up believing in our household that the, the most you could do for the country and the world is to be a part of the civil rights ongoing movement. Not, it didn't end at a point. So I think it's the, the, if you really believe in reform and you really believe in the power of gatekeeping and the power of discretion and what that means, then that's the side, so to speak, that you should be drawn to. And I'm not saying that I mean, defense attorneys do wonder do wonderful things, and they should. Watch it, watch it, and watch they should. Watch. Well, do wonderful things, and you should. You should because you know how important your role is as well. Um, but I think if the more we think about this in terms of less about sides and more about a symbiotic relationship, the more we'll actually be able to achieve justice. You know, justice is a is what I like to call a verb, and I think that you and I ascribe to the same notion of justice. Speaking of that, though, looking back at your time at the Department of Justice, I think you're someone who can speak to this uh, better than most. How effectively do you think this Department of Justice is showing the American people that they're bringing the perpetrators of the January 6th riots to justice? And could they be doing more to publicly show the department's work and demonstrating to Americans that their consequences for what these people did, maybe talking about elected officials or the financiers, not just the people who went into uh, the Capitol. What's your opinion on how DOJ is tackling this? You know, I think there's something very valuable in being contemplative about approaching cases, but contemplative can turn into paralysis pretty quickly. Yes. And um, I do think that there 
could be greater expedience when it comes to prosecution. However, there has been a lot of prosecutions. The media covers the people who stonewall and who are thumbing their nose, but there has been many people who have been prosecuted. But you have to think about January 6th more expansively, I think, and not you, I know you know, but like generally speaking, we talk about justice as a verb. The inquiry first begins with people who are able to leave the Capitol, walk by police officers. That's where your first concerns about justice in America have to really sort of begin on January 6th. The idea of the decision with whom to approach, arrest, confront, have these encounters, the idea of um, the standing down aspects, the idea of not hearing. I don't think we ever heard a single gunshot be fired that day. Right. Yep. Um, well, one, 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 I believe well, well, one inside, the, yes, inside the Capitol and someone, and someone, of course, passed away. Ashley Babbitt was her name. But I'm talking about the outside confrontations that uh, we correct. as a nation have been grappling with and these police encounters. I think um, in terms of the justice system approaching this, we have to start, think, start first thinking about well, why were their decisions made that this population did not pose a fatal threat and a lethal threat? How do you build gallows? and people are able to walk away. How is this happening? On the other part of it, in terms of the decisions of um, the, with whatever force and vigor to prosecute, I think that they could be doing um, more to highlight the cases and tell the American people what they're actually doing to secure justice. Having it trickle out when the media pays attention is not going to be the best way to show people that there has been um, a, a universal approach to justice. So they should do more on, on messaging, but also do more to show that um, these sorts of crimes, the idea of attacks in this respect, should be treated as seriously as any other in our country. Yep. Yeah. Tell me this, though. I mean, uh, January 6th is one thing, yeah. but what we're also seeing is this rise of uh, extremism and domestic terrorism and white supremacist domestic terrorism, if we want to be accurate about our, our terms. Um, how do you think or how do you suppose one from your perch, the department is handling this rise? And, you know, what more can the Department of Justice do? I mean, this is right in their bailiwick. You've had the kidnapping plots of Governor Whitmer in Michigan. Um, you've had the coup. Um, and we've we've seen this rise of of uh, these extreme white supremacists everywhere from our own police departments to now even in Congress with Marjorie Taylor Greene and Bobart out of or Bobert, Bobert, Bobart. I don't know how to pronounce her name out of Colorado. So what are some of the things that DOJ should be doing and what are some of the things that they are doing? Correctly. Yeah. You know what? First of all, when you talk about um, the instances, you're talking about, I can't help but immediately go to Islamophobia and hate crime related aspects of things. And there needs to be so much more done to confront the rise of nationalism, because I don't think it use the word use the word correctly. It didn't just emerge all of a sudden. It, it is not happenstance that people are able to organize with the speed and the scope that they are. It shows you what was always lurking in the shadows. It shows you in many respects um, an explanation not justification, an explanation for why slavery lasted over 400 years. It wasn't just a single person. It wasn't just one politician. It wasn't just one person who had an idea one day. There was a concerted effort to oppress and to maintain the power dynamic in a way that hurt people. And I think what needs to be taken, taken into consideration is the idea that given the fact that it was not a spontaneous combustion, essentially, 
that there needs to be more focus investigating wise on the roots of it, on the chatter online, on the ways in which the people are able to come together and organize in these ways. And it really is a threat to national security. So anytime we're talking about national security, I think that a conversation must be had about incorporating white nationalism, because that's a threat mm -hmm. to our everyday lives. It's a threat, you talk about terrorism, we focus on international terrorism without the same emphasis on domestic terrorism, which allows people to evade the same level of prosecution. And with this prosecution, Bakari, you know, it's about deterrence. If people yep. knew there were consequences to their actions that would be immediately rectified, that prosecution would occur. And when they're prosecuted, you have enhanced sentencing. It does a lot towards stopping things. It doesn't mean the, the mentality ideology stops. It means how you act on it. It means your willingness to feel emboldened by it. And so I think you have to envelop it into conversations about having domestic terrorism statutes in place, about how to increase the surveillance when it comes to hate crime type legislation and the power of the FBI and tie it to national security, because only then will people take it seriously if they believe any day, any moment, any second, you could be the target of somebody's hate. Yep. That's that becomes part of the all in together philosophy. My foot, I'm gonna stand my foot's asleep all of a sudden. Let me adjust. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> it fell asleep. I was sitting on my, I was trying to look as tall as you in the screen. Just I, I, I don't, I, how you, how you sitting on your foot when I know you're wearing those Louboutins or Jimmy Choo's that you wear? Well, actually, you... I have on a beautiful suede stiletto right now. <laughs> <laughs> I had to take off a little suede booty, but I'm trying to look as tall. I'm only five free, Bakari. You, I know. Trust me, being on, being on TV with you is, is an interesting thing because we have to maneuver. So they should know. Like they, they, you know, maybe people out there. They want us all the same height, and so which is terrible. They, they shrink my they shrink my chair so my knees are up in my chest. Meanwhile, my thighs are pressed against the glass. Like I have to move <laughs> at some point. I'm not. I, everyone knows I'm not as tall as Bakari Sellers. Okay, <laughs> I'm okay with him being taller. It's not a power. Yeah, no, they they want to make us all look five five. You know, we we were talking about this white supremacy and and domestic terrorism, but we've also seen a rise of vigilantism, I believe, in this country. I think it's all tied in. Talk about your analysis of what you saw in the Rittenhouse case and the Albury case, which were vigilante-esque uh, incidents yeah. in this country. I actually thought that there was reasonable doubt enveloped throughout the Rittenhouse case, but I think that most people's frustration lies in the fact that he was treated differently from the beginning to the end uh, then and and given the benefit and grace of his youth where most black boys are not. So what's your analysis of both tied into this larger rise of vigilantism and supremacy we see in this country? Well, you know, on vigilantism, it's I have a very expansive view in terms of how these cases are alike and then different. One, mm -hmm. vigilantism in general, if you believe that you are somehow entitled to play the role of law enforcement, that speaks volumes about who you think your position is in this country and your level of entitlement. Um, it also speaks to a, uh, a dissatisfaction to the nth degree of people and their view of law enforcement. You're talking about in the Rittenhouse case, he believed when he saw the, the, the rioting in the wake of, as he called it, the wake of the shooting of Jacob Blake, who remains paralyzed based on what, seven shots to his back in front of his children, people mm -hmm. talk about Rittenhouse, but let's not forget what happened to Jacob Blake. And that uh, that officer was not prosecuted. 
his attorney actually brought that up in part of his argument and made the point, well, if that wasn't wasn't um, prosecuted, well, this shouldn't be prosecuted. So there's an idea here of them making these analogies. But I'll say in terms of this, in terms of what the role is, we have a long history in our country of allowing people to be deputized to act in the role of law enforcement when they think that the law isn't doing enough and the people mm -hmm. who are targeted. This goes back to the, the Klan. Um, this goes back to the, the, the idea of having the Klan emerge to try to usurp law enforcement, to take the law into their own hands. We see it all across this country in older laws as well. I mean, Georgia is an example of what's going on there. But I think when we talk about vigilantism, Bakari has to be a discussion about why people feel so emboldened to act. And the re reason is there aren't consequences to their actions. The idea of most people who are who feel marginalized in our society will say, we're going to sort of hope justice will see the light of day. There are others who say, I'm going to make this happen to my own determination and definition of what justice is. I'm going to act on it. I see the Rittenhouse case and the um, the McMichael um, and Bryant trial different because the Rittenhouse case was more of a conversation about his views of the ability of law enforcement to contain rioting and the stoking of the flames politically of look what's happening. They're not going to have your back. They're not going to help. It's a, it's according to you what should happen. The McMichael and the Roddy Bryant trial was about these three men who saw a black man running and said he must be doing something illegal. He has no right to survive this encounter and killing him. This is a different form of vigilantism for different reasons. It's a different form of being deputized. The same conversation, Bakari, can we said about the Texas abortion ban, deputizing yeah. people around the country to be able to do what they think the law enforcement is not capable or is not doing, but they thematically are, are distinct. But in any, in any case, you and I have talked about that, talked about all these cases and talked about the reasons why the prosecution was going to have a hard time meeting its burden for one case versus the other. Um, the killing of Ahmaud Arbery, a much clear cut, much more clear cut case than the shooting encounters of Rittenhouse. No question. No question at all on that. Since you are a veteran of the of the Department of Justice and particularly on voting rights, I have to ask, just so listeners understand, what type of handicap is placed on um, our good friend Kristen Clark over there at the Department of Justice because of the inaction of Congress when it comes to the issue of voting rights? Oh. It seems as if the I mean, not only do we not have 10 Republicans, which is crazy because I was reading an article on Bob Dole the other day um, and they were talking about how in 1982, 83, Bob Dole literally led the effort to reauthorize the Voting Rights Act. Bob Dole. Right now, we can't get 10 Republicans to re to reauthorize it. And then we don't have 50 Democrats to limit the filibuster for the purposes of passing voting rights. So we're in your wisdom and experience. Tell me what, if anything, can the Department of Justice do and where do we stand on the fundamental tenets of democracy with your voting rights? I'm so glad you asked that, Makari. And it, just, it is shocking to think about Bob Dole being the person to advance it because we so often think about voting rights in this country as a partisan issue. It should not be. It's a democratic issue. Um, Kristen Clark was a was actually um, a predecessor of mine in the voting section. I've always looked up to her and her career, and she is unbelievably smart. 
She is her unbelievably her fluency in civil rights legislation, her fluency in the legal architecture that it takes to be able to create the changes we need as a society is second to none. Um, And she knows full well that even with the impeccable mind and talent that she has as as a lawyer, Congress's failure to recalibrate Section 5's preclearance formula is virtually unforgivable. And it hamstrings not only the work of attorneys general, it hamstrings the ability of the American electorate to be able to fully participate in their democracy. Remember, Section 5 had within its druthers a preclearance formula that said, look, we know that there have been certain states and jurisdictions that have had a history of discrimination as it relates to um, to racial um, injustice in elections. We know you have a history of this, so we're going to get ahead of it. And you got to pre-authorize with the Department of Justice before you make any changes. And I'm talking about Bakari changes like they would do things like, you know what, I want to change our polling place to a known previous Klan location. I want to change the election day on a radio ad so that you get the wrong date. I want to make sure there's not enough ballots or only a limited number. I want to make sure it's not these important. You you ran the gamut. And so Section 5 allowed the Department of Justice to be proactive about trying to fend off and stave off injustice. Without that formula being recalibrated, and Congress can do it. They can just create a new formula. They could do this. We've seen the work they do. We, they can, when they want to do it, they can do something. So now we're up with section two, which is the reactive notion. And in the beginning of our conversation, Bakari, we talked about the difference between being having heat the table and being yep. the proactive or the reactive role. Section two is still very valuable, but it's reactive. It happens after, essentially, Correct. after the problem has taken place. And who's changing the election results? Who's doing that? Who it's it's you're talking about years down the road, even the Department of Justice right now suing Texas about the um, redistricting and the vote dilution. These are once in a every 10 year opportunity because the census to do something about it. And the Supreme Court's already hand, you know, handicapped that as well. So it is so crucial for Congress to actually do more, to be proactive as a deterrence to these sorts of factors from happening. And their failure to do so is unconscionable, but it also tells you, it also tells you, once in power, people seem to have very little inspiration to ensure universal access. There's a power in trying to maintain the majority, right? You know this very well. I mean, the idea of trying to make sure that, you know, you want people to come out and vote and get the majority, but People who are in power tend to focus on their maintain retention of their of their own power and don't think about the long term consequences of rendering entire voting blocks powerless. Well, I mean, I wish Democrats would focus on retaining power, then maybe they would pass voting rights. Right. I don't I mean, the inability of this White House and others to do that is just frustrating. Before I let you go, because I know you got a busy day saving the world. I want to talk about your book, <laughs> uh, Just Pursuit. Do you mean Tell this me, book, Bakari? I, I just happened uh, to have, wait, what? I mean, oh, I'm wait, I was oh, looking in the hold mail. Hold on a second, for, hold on a second. I was looking in the mail for mine. How come you ain't put your picture on the front of it? I put it on the inside. Oh, it's on the inside. I, you, <laughs> they were like, what you want on the front of your book? I was like, my picture. Oh, me. you're so cute. You're so cute. It's <laughs> little, Bakari. Absolutely. I'm so 
<laughs> little bitty Bakar. Man, what's no, this? What's this? Bakar. What's this book about? And why'd bitty. you write it? It wasn't little bitty. You were probably a giant Ben. I thought I was long legs. Six or seven. Yeah, it was all. I was all. You were six feet. You were six feet. <laughs> you were. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe. You, but your whole picture could have fit on the front of the book then, because you're not but four eleven. Five, well, five well I could have, but I got a five head. My forehead. So <laughs> I had a, either either the title could work or the face. Well, it's called. It's called Just Pursue, a Black Prosecutor's Fight for Fairness. And really, it goes on all the themes we've been talking about today. I mean, we hear so many times, Bakari, about speaking truth to power. Yep. And I chose to write a narrative memoir about the truth. You ought to know what it really is. When you ask for justice, when you demand justice, when you're marching for it, here's what it means in the confines of this department and what it's like when a Black woman is the man. What that's like when you have these battles of allegiance, when oftentimes your mind, your identities, all the different facets of yourself are in conflict, sometimes in cahoots, sometimes in conflict with the very entity that you are charged with upholding by your oath. And it talks about anything from what it was like for me as a Black woman to have to aid in a deportation asked to aid in deportation of somebody, what it's like when there is a case of mistaken identity. What does that look like behind the scenes? How do you correct it? Discussions about victim blaming from judges of, you know, rape victims and how you navigate that as a woman, how you in a Me Too era see what goes on when you unpeel the layers of the different implicit and you know explicit bias. The ideas of what it was like in the South when I would go on voting um, investigations in the Deep South and, and in a post-Obama era. Was the Supreme Court right or not wrong about these things? The idea of really, it tells all the different stories of the gap between what is right and what is lawful, mm. what is wrong and what is illegal. And it goes to that and it really, it's not what people expect of me, I think. I think he bought the expression I would do a very, you know, you know, this is the statute and here's how we're going to explain. But I feel that storytelling is the most compelling way for no people to understand justice. And it goes through all of that. And it's available. And I'm so proud I was going to say, that's my last question. Tell me where, how you find it, because mine ain't coming in the mail yet, but it should be here <laughs> any day now. You know what? I was trying to walk, my foot fell asleep. Hold on, we get me, me banging out a second. No, it's available on pre-order right now, but your copy, you know, was coming to you and I cannot wait. I'm when does it come out? January 18th. It comes out the day, January 18th and it's it, it's an honor. It was written in part because I always have found myself striving to be in the legacy and the of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. And it comes out that week. And so I really hope that you, you love it. I hope that you, it opens a conversation. It also get people to understand me in a more personal level um, and a more personal note and helps people to understand what would you do, Bakari? What would you do if you find yourself having orders you're supposed to follow and your moral compass pointed the different direction? Well, I love you, Lord. You are one of the love dopest individuals we have. Thank you for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast. It's good to see you, sweetheart. Thank you. So happy to All be right. here. I'm going to go try to tap my foot out. I don't know I what know. happened here. <laughs>